You are listening to a message from Victory Alabang. Get the latest updates by visiting victoryalabang.org or like us on facebook.com slash victoryalabang. We are on our second week, week two of our Christmas series, Rediscovering Christmas. We're going through what you call the incarnation. That's the doctrine of the birth of Christ. Today, we're going to be focusing on the book of Luke, on how his take is on the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Rediscovering Christmas is really a take on Christmas. We're so familiar with the birth of Jesus. We grew up in this culture having all these different types of icons and images and colors and food and celebration as early as September 1st. We are celebrating Christmas. Maybe by now you're tired of going to Christmas parties. I don't know how many Christmas parties we go to every year. One particular year, my record was 28 Christmas parties in one month. And can you imagine that? Tatlo na lang, bingo na. December is now known as the month of weddings. No longer June. So if you are a single person here, prepare for December, okay? No longer I'm not really sure why. Maybe because of the weather. June is a bit hot. December is more... Breezy, though it's also heavier in traffic. You know, the different icons of Christmas. You've got reunions. You've got, of course, the classic icon, which is Santa Claus. Many times he is more popular than the actual baby who was born and we're celebrating. That's why even as a family, we were so deliberate. When our kids were younger, we wanted to make sure that they get to celebrate and they get to know who they're celebrating with. And so we have what you call the Happy Birthday Jesus Party where they get to invite friends and you know some of the little children in the neighborhood. So what we do is we just blow up you know some balloons. We have birthday cake, not for anyone, but just for Jesus. And so the cake is named Happy Birthday Jesus to make sure that the children know exactly why we are celebrating Christmas. And so we don't want to be covered or to be, you know, muddled by all this business, all the commercialism and secularism. And so we want to be able to focus on what is the real reason why Jesus came. And so thus, this particular series, Rediscovering Christmas. We hope to rediscover Christmas from the eyes of the original New Testament writers and how they perceive that to be. You know, different writers, like four different writers writing on the same event. How is that possible? It's kind of like looking at a gem from different sides. You know, I know that women, you know, for those of you who love diamonds, you know, there's not one side maybe that's the same. So you look at the particular stone or gem, and so you focus it on one side. When you go to the other side, it looks a bit different, but you're looking at the same stone. It's kind of like going to the same event. You've got four different witnesses. Maybe they're coming from different sides, but you witness the same event. So what we're doing is we're witnessing the same event, the birth of Jesus, but different writers and how they perceive Christmas to be and their emphasis and their audience. Matthew's audience, as we talked about last week, was mainly the Jews. So he was presenting the king of the Jews, basically as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and that Jesus came as the one, as the Messiah that they were expecting among the Jewish people. We're going to look at Luke. And we're going to read just three passages from Luke chapter 1. And then we're going to go through the narrative of Luke chapter 2. So if you are a pastor... Maybe this is a little bit different from what you are used to practicing. Okay, so we're going to read 1, 
chapter, three verses, just to establish that Jesus Christ is King. He came here as the King. Now, if you're familiar with Luke, Luke is focused on presenting Jesus as the suffering servant. And we're going to look at that later on. And we're just going to read three verses from Luke chapter 1. And this is basically the story of Mary, the narrative on how the angel appeared to her and how she responded and the prophecies about our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Being pregnant with the Holy Spirit, how many of you know that is favor from God? Amen. It only happens once, by the way. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you so much for the preaching of your word, and we ask that you bless it, Lord. And we ask, Holy Spirit, once again, that you give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know who you are and how we can celebrate this Christmas story, not in the secular way, not in the commercial way, not in the world's way, but from the biblical narrative, God. We thank you, Lord, for the account of Luke, that, Lord, you would enlighten us, Lord God, and why he emphasized on such characters in his writing, Lord God. So bless the preaching of your word today. May we come out of here changed. And, Lord, recipients of your grace and favor, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, we're now looking at Luke. The Gospel account of Luke. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Luke, Luke is a, or was a doctor. He's a physician. And he actually wrote not just one book, but two books. And he wrote both Luke and the book of Acts. In fact, if you will look at the writing style of Luke, it's so consistent between the two books and what they're saying is that he actually wrote this as one whole book. One particular story talking about the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the second part of the same book or narrative is now the story of the church. When Jesus arose from the dead and he went to heaven and, you know, the disciples were looking at him and they were asking, you know, and the, the, this angels were saying, you know, why are you staring? This Jesus whom you saw lifted up will be the same Jesus who will come back here. And so it's the same storyline. They're saying it's the same book written to one particular person named Theophilus. This happens to be an interesting book. In fact, this is considered the longest book in the New Testament. So in other words, Luke is the one who's contributed the most in terms of number of chapters or pages or verses in the New Testament, followed by the Apostle Paul writing his epistles. Of course, if you count the number of epistles, the Apostle Paul is the one who's got more writings in the area of number of letters. Luke happens to celebrate Jesus as the king of an upside-down kingdom, if I may use that term. Why upside down? The reason why we see here it's upside down is because you'll find that the character that Luke is mentioning is most of the time those that are lowly and poor and marginalized. Those that are not really celebrated in society like the shepherds, 
like the tax collectors, the sinners, the orphans, the widows, the women, you know, they are not considered as in the same, you know, culturally, same level as the men, but somehow Luke celebrates that. He celebrates the lost, you know, in chapter 15 of Luke, he celebrates the lost things, the lost coin, the lost son, and the lost sheep. And so Luke is actually laying down images in the birth narrative of Christ that forces us to think, what kind of king is this? You know, if he is the king of the upside-down kingdom, you know, normally we look at king, and if you look at the royalty, and it's like an exclusive, you know, uh, royalty, and only the noble men can actually go in and meet up with the royal family. Now, Jesus is a different kind of king. Though he was born in a royal lineage of David, he's not an exclusive type or an elitist type of a king because he would rather be with the low-class people in the kingdom. And so that is what Luke was emphasizing that as a king, he is not the elite kind of a king, but he is the king for all peoples. Siguro pag Tagalog, for all seasons, okay? King for all seasons, okay? And so he is the king that you and I can relate with or relate to. He's the king that is approachable. He's the king that is not afraid to dirty his hands and roll his sleeves and actually serve with the people around him. So he is presented as a counterintuitive king who came for the lost, the weak, the poor, and the marginalized. You know, it reminds us of the counterintuitive message of Christmas that Jesus really came here to seek and to save that which is lost. He didn't come for the found. He didn't come for the righteous. He didn't come for those who are well. He came for those who are sick and dying. He came for all of us. We were sick. We were dying of sin. Amen. So he came here, not so that he can flash the world that he is a mighty king, although you know, that's who he is, but that he came in a very humble state. Jesus as our Savior King the one who will reign over us both now and forever. He is the one that we are celebrating. He is the reason why we are celebrating this season. We always see that Jesus is the reason for this season. Not Santa Claus, not Rudolph, not the other icons. And so what kind of king is Jesus? Three things. Number one, Jesus is the sovereign king. Everybody says the sovereign king. Though he was born in an obscure manner, Jesus nonetheless rules over all of creation. We all know the way he came in on earth, it was not the royal way of being born. He didn't come as an adult. He could have just appeared. How many of you know that he could have appeared already as a 30-year-old man, you know, and start doing miracles and start preaching and start talking about the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the kingdom of heaven is near. He could have done that, but why choose the route of a baby? A helpless little baby. Yet we know that he is a sovereign king. Now let's focus on the narrative found in Luke chapter 2. And here we see that in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all who went to be registered each to his own town. You gotta realize that there is something that's happening during this time not only in Jerusalem but in the whole world. 
Julius Caesar died and his heir apparent, his adopted son named Gaius Octavius took the throne. Rome used to be a Roman Republic. But because of this person's ambition to solidify all the colonies of Rome, he made it into an empire. So here we can see that during this time, he was establishing his footing, he was establishing his sovereignty, he was establishing his emperorship, so to speak. And this, the very first emperor, happens to be Caesar Augustus. His real name is Gaius Octavius. As I said earlier, he was the son of Julius Caesar. Octavius had quite an ego. He was very proud. And so he went to the Senate and he wanted to have a change of name that reflects who he is. Now they deified Julius Caesar and so he was considered as a god. And by this time, guess what? Since Julius Caesar is a god and he is the son of Julius Caesar, can you imagine or guess what is his title? He is the son of God. Quite familiar, right? And so he went to the Roman Senate and dropped the name Octavius and added the title Augustus. Augustus meaning majesty or divine. So when you talk about Caesar, Caesar being Lord and Augustus being divine, it means that he is the divine Lord. And it's interesting that Jesus came at this particular time when he is supposed to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's challenging the rulership and the kingship of this new emperor that is trying to establish himself not only in the nation of Jerusalem but around the whole known world at that time. Now, there are three things that we can actually look at in this particular, you know, by just being in history. I'm not really sure if you're into history. I'm not really into history. I'm more into math. That's why I'm an accountant. But I guess taking masters, you got to learn how to read more books, right? And so, you know, there are different things that's happening in the Roman Empire this time. Of course, there's the Roman glory. He wanted to show to the world that he is a powerful emperor. Second is taxation. He wanted to make sure. And the reason why he's calling for a census is so that he will find out how many people are there in his known kingdom, in all the territories. And he wanted to make sure that everybody should go back to where they were born, or where they were registered, because he wanted to find out that there's no flying voters. So everybody had to go back to their hometown. You know, he, he wanted to make sure that he would have a big war chest, establishing a taxation system for Rome. What he's saying is, as he was announcing the census, read my lips, new taxes coming. Not a very popular promise for incoming politicians, right? They would promise no tax or maybe lesser tax, not Caesar Augustus. What he's saying is, more tax. Of course, at this particular time, there's what you call the Pax Romana. Pax Romana is called the Roman peace. And what they're saying is, they have established peace in all their conquered territories. That there's no war out there. As long as you are a loyal subject to Rome, you will enjoy Pax Romana. And you will notice that there are different words that are very popular at that time. Familiar words that we have used in Christianity. At that particular time, they would use the word freedom and justice and peace and prosperity and even the word salvation. In fact, this 
five words are not just ordinary words, they're called imperial words. They're imperial themes. In other words, if an emperor would come in and rule his empire, these are the deliverables of a new emperor. I will be an emperor, no matter how bad I am or how good I am, I promise you this, you're going to have freedom, you're going to have justice, you're going to have peace, you're going to have prosperity, and you're going to be saved from your enemies because I am a powerful emperor. So are you getting the picture? He is establishing this. This is actually even known as, you know, when a new emperor is inaugurated or celebrated, this is what you call evangelion or good news or gospel. In other words, the word gospel or evangelion or good news is not really a Christian word. It's actually coming from the idea of a Roman emperor trying to establish rulership. You know, Luke is very detailed. He was a doctor. And I'm pretty sure the reason why he's including this particular text or this verse is so that he can establish to the known world out there and give clues that, hey guys, there's a new emperor, but guess what? There's somebody even greater. And he's called Jesus. His name is Jesus and he's called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Come on now. No emperor can actually thwart the power and the majesty of this king who's sovereign over the lives not only of men of Israel, but even of the world that is known during that time. Jesus arrived at just the right time. The stage was set. Everything was in order, in accordance to the plan and the purpose of God. And then Jesus arrived. In verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was one of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, okay, we know that from last week, who was with child. Caesar Augustus thought that he was in charge of all known world at that time. What he did not know that he was just part of the grand plan of God in making sure that as he goes out and decrees, a census that everybody should go back to their hometown. Part of the plan is to make sure that the first family, Joseph and Mary, would go back to Bethlehem in order to fulfill the prophecy that was given by Micah 700 years before the actual birth of Christ. How many of you know that sometimes you think that we're in charge, we're sovereign, we're like ruling, we can actually plan for the future, but how many of you know that ultimately God is the one who's sovereign over our lives? And this is the new emperor trying to you know, flex his muscle and trying to prove to the world that I am the new king, I am the new emperor, and I am the most powerful person alive during this time. Guess what? He's only a pawn in the purpose and in the plan of God. Come on now. He's just one of the little characters. In fact, his very name was actually... Yeah, it was included there in verse 1, but for the most part, he was almost like a footnote. He thinks that he's the main person or character in history. It's not him. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. So to give us a perspective where they you know, came from, of course, they came from Galilee. They went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. Where are they going? To the city of David in Jerusalem called Bethlehem. So they're going down south. So if you see the map, there's Galilee, and this is Bethlehem. 
the distance is about 80 miles or 130 kilometers. It'll probably take you about maybe eh, three, four days. Pastor Ferdy running maybe about 36 hours, okay? He's an ultramarathoner, okay? So he ran that already, 160 kilometers, okay? In fact, 36 hours. You know, Mary is pregnant. You got to remember, Mary is already on her ninth month or 36 weeks. Basta June siya. Can you imagine if you are a pregnant woman and you need to travel from one place to the next, how many of you know that you will not be given, uh, you know, a clearance by your doctor if you know if you need to ride a plane. Now, in this particular case, of course, he's riding Donkey Express. But can you imagine the the trip? And you know, Mary is full already, about to give birth, and I don't know how many stops they made in order for them to reach Galilee to Bethlehem. And we here we see that just because they needed to obey the decree of the new emperor, they were required to travel that far. They would have opted to maybe have an exemption, you know, can, can you just go to your, your OB, you know, have you know, maybe a medical certificate that I cannot travel anymore. They could have done that. But how many of you know that God ultimately is sovereign over our lives? And here we can see the sovereign hand of God moving in the lives of the characters of the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. We see the same prophecy from Micah, as I said earlier, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. He prophesied 700 years before the actual birth of Christ that he will actually be born in Bethlehem. And though Caesar Augustus said that, you know, everybody goes back to his hometown, ultimately it's God who told Caesar Augustus, now it's time. Give the order so that my son Joseph will go back to Bethlehem and that my son Jesus will be born right there where the prophet have spoken 700 years prior. How many of you know that God is an amazing God? Come on now. 300 prophecies were fulfilled in the life of Jesus 700, 800 years prior to His birth. What's the significance of this for us today? Maybe some of you are asking, eh, ano pastor? So what? So what if God is sovereign? Because God is sovereign, you're going to have a good future. Because God is sovereign, your plans, which is really less than what God's plan is for you. How many of you know that God's plan for us is always good, pleasing, and perfect? Come on now. We can make plans for our life, and we can actually push it, and we can actually write our goals for 2019. By 2019, I'm going to get a salary like this, or I'm going to get promoted, I'm going to get married, I'm going to move to this Particular. How many of you know that it's not about our plans, it's about God's plan for us? We ultimately have to submit to the sovereign hand of God. Who knew for a fact that 30-something years ago that I would actually meet Shirley in the review school? Or in like, it's mostly my classmates coming from our school who's enrolled there. And she came from another school, it happened to be that she cross-enrolled 
Nobody does that. But I believe we did it. And it's not her. It's God who allowed this thing to happen. And I'm just saying this story so that we can actually meet in the review school at that time and she can sit beside my good friend, the brother of Pastor Junis Kosar, who happened to be studying in the same board exam for CPA, sitting with her. I don't know if he sang a song, Christian song, and she recognized that and so on and so forth. We were introduced and the rest is history. Praise God. We became office mates and our sweethearts. <laughs> Talk about the sovereign hand of God. And maybe you can look at your life and maybe say, was it an accident that we actually met in a party or maybe in a bar? Or maybe, you know, we were classmates, you know, we cross-enrolled and we were in this particular course. Maybe or maybe not. If you knew that God is sovereign, we can actually just be free to put our trust in the sovereign hand of our good, benevolent God. We can just say, God, thank you so much for your goodness in our lives. Caesar Augustus thought that he was the most powerful man on earth at that time. He didn't realize that he was just a minute part of God's grand plan of redemption of mankind. He thought he was doing the world a favor. But God's actually just using him so he can fulfill his divine plan for all of us. Do you ever feel that you lack control of things? You know, maybe your health or maybe your relationships or maybe your business or finances. You know, sometimes you, know, you want to put things in order and then they're not in order. You want to be in charge. You want to be in control of things. I want to feel that you can never, ever be in 100% control of all things. No matter what kind of a planner we are, no matter how OC you are, no matter how many diaries or you know, digital planners you buy, we can never be 100% be in control of things in our lives. And if we're wise enough, we will put everything in the hands of God and say, God, I'm going to do my plans. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that will ultimately prevail. Come on now. And God's purpose for our lives is good. 2019 is going to be great. I'm going to make my plans. Yes, I'm not going to be irresponsible. But yet, I'm going to be flexible and say, God, whatever happens, I know I'm in good hands. Whatever challenge that I may actually go through in life, I'm going to be in good hands. Secondly, Jesus is the humble king of kings. He's sovereign, and yet he's so humble. In verse 6, And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came, ito na, umiri na, nagburst na yung water bag, for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in what? Swaddling cloths and laid him in a nice crib. How we wish. Or in a nice hotel room. No, in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. And because everybody was traveling from all the different places, they had to book the hotels in order for them to fill in the census. That's the situation. But since they were traveling via donkey and he had, he had to stop along the way because of a pregnant woman, they were there late. 
How many of you know that still it was the hand of God that brought them there in the manger? You know, I was looking through the internet and I found on Pinterest the most expensive crib in the world. And it's actually made of pure gold. Guess how much this crib is worth? $16.4 million for a crib made of pure gold. Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's Creator God. He created all the entire universe. He said, you know, the earth is mine, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. And yet, He was not even born in a nice little house. He was born in a manger. And contrary to our practice of a manger, you know, we look at modern kinds of manger now, right? You know, you go to the barn, you go to the countryside in the U.S., you know, you see like nice barns there and there's like a manger. A manger or a trough is where the animals feed. This is where they drink or where they eat. They had diggings in some of the sites in Jerusalem and they found out that mangers were not really made out of wood. They're really made out of stone. Something new, right? Rediscovering Christmas. This is how an ancient trough looks like. It's made of stone. I don't know if it's one piece of stone carved out, but somehow that's how it is. This can actually hold water without any leaks. This can actually last for generations. And imagine little baby Jesus being born, laid inside this manger. What a humbling experience. King of kings, Lord of lords. He came so that He can save us. In the manger, we feel God loves us. And He went to the cross, His expression of God saving us. What an amazing God we serve. He could have gone as a man. He could have actually served. He could have gone and actually went straight to the cross. But in humility, He actually went and debased Himself and became a human being just like us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. In another translation, he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, Jesus, as the humble king of kings, Set the example of humility for all of us. This is how maybe a politician should behave. Of course, we've heard and we've seen, you know, the previous administration said, you know, walang wang wang. And I don't know, today it's back with a vengeance. <laughs> Everybody, even non-politician, you know, I think there's like these sirens. And they seem to be enjoying privileges. Not our Jesus. The Bible says whoever is humble will be exalted. And he actually opposes the proud and they will be demoted. What's the significance of him coming as a humble king? Why did he have to come as a humble king? 
Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 25, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and what? Humble in heart, and you will find rest. What's the implication of Jesus becoming a humble king? We can always come to him. He'll not drive us away. You may actually be struggling with certain sin or maybe struggling with a temptation or maybe struggling with bitterness or maybe struggling with depression or oppression or maybe struggling with a bad relationship or maybe going through some painful physical ailment. You know what? You can always come to Jesus. He's a humble king. He is reachable. A flickering he will not snuff out. A bruised reed he will not break. He is so gentle to his people. He's a humble king. And the very announcement of this king coming to us is in the form of an angel. And guess who were the recipients of that news? It's shepherds. In the same region, verse 8, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And, you know, Bethlehem's shepherds were known to take care of temple flock. You know, because, uh, you know, they, they position themselves near the temple. And so they either take care of the animals for people or they sell those, those who are offering. They were considered to be the lowliest occupation at that time. Humble profession of shepherding. Some historians would say that they are outcasts of society, but, you know, this has to be proven because we know that the heroes of the faith were shepherds. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. King David was a shepherd. One of the greatest psalms, Psalm 23, is what? The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus came as the Lamb of God and eventually He became the good shepherd. So we don't really know if it is a despised or outcast occupation, but what we do know is it is a lowly occupation. Nobody wants to be a shepherd. They'd rather be a businessman or maybe a tax collector like Levi because they can enrich themselves. But they are the poorest of the poor. And God chose to be the first recipients of the good news, the most lowly people in the nation of Israel, the shepherds, those who are downtrodden, those who are looked down by society, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Of course, if you see an angel, they're not cute little stubby, you know, fat babies with diapers and with little wings. You know, you'd love to bring them home, right? Like a stuffed toy, not the angels of the Bible. One angel has killed 70,000 men in one encounter. That's the power of one angel. And so the angel appeared to them, and it's, I think it's natural for them to be fearful. You know, just shining His light on them. This continues on with our third point. Jesus is the King who brought us peace. He is a sovereign King. He is a humble King of kings. And He is the King who brought us peace. And so the angel said to them, Fear not. Everybody say, Fear not. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We see here big phrases like fear not. You know, people nowadays fear the unknown. They fear the future. We fear, you know, what is not measurable, you know. Somehow, if you don't know 
the outcome of something, your tendency is to worry and to be anxious and to fear. The angels are saying, fear not. This is not the time to fear. It's the time to rejoice. And then he said, I bring you good news. Good news, not with bad news. You know how it is, right? Sometimes we have this joke, you know, I have good news, the good news, and the bad news, you know. Which do you like the first, you know? And so we say, okay, the bad news, okay, what's the bad news? Okay, uh, well, the good news, I tell the good news first. You know, one particular guy went to the doctor. The good news is you only have one day to live. Is that the good news? What's the bad news? Uh, I forgot to text you yesterday. <laughs> so that was the bad news. Okay, so, you know, it's not like that. When you talk about the good news of the gospel, it means you're appreciating it because there's no more bad news attached to it. But the more you appreciate the good news is because you're coming out from the bad news, though, that we were all supposed to go to hell. God is not giving us a good news and a bad news bundled together. He's only giving us good news because He's delivering us from the bad news. And the Bible says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The problem of man is not addiction. It's not unforgiveness. It's not you know, oppression or depression. The problem of man is hamartia. It's sin. And sin brings human beings to hell. God's given us good news that brings great joy. And joy is stable regardless of our circumstance or situation. Joy is different from happiness. Happiness is based on happenings. If you have money in your bank, you know, you're happy. If you don't have money in your bank, if you receive your bonus, I'm happy. If you already spent everything, you're not happy anymore. But joy is different. Joy is a state of relationship with God. It's stable. No matter what you go through, it's going to be joyful. May the joy of the Lord be our strength. No matter what situation or circumstance you and I are in. And then, we see that this news is for all the people, not only for the elite, not only for the religious, not only for those who are going to the temple, not only for those who are regularly offering, but for all people. The poor, the marginalized, the lowly, the widow, those who are not able to come to church, those who are serving Caesar as tax collector, hated by society, prostitutes and sinners, for all people. Luke is reaching out and preaching to the message that Jesus, the King of Kings, came not only for those who are deserving of the mercy of God, but to all of us who are so undeserving of God's mercy and grace. And that's the reason why it's called grace. It's called unmerited favor with God. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. I believe this sign is not so that they can prove, you know. Some theologians are saying maybe the, the shepherds are wondering if this is a real prophecy. Can you imagine? It's an angel <laughs> appearing to you, okay? It's already a miracle. I believe the reason why the angel is saying you will find a baby wrapped in cloths in a manger is because at that time, maybe so many different babies were born in Jerusalem or in Bethlehem. It's for identification, don't just go to any other baby. Find the baby in the manger. That is the sign 
That is the identification of who this Jesus is. King of kings and Lord of lords. And so they went. But before they went, suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, and so this one angel called for backup. The entire chorale came up there and they sang a heavenly song. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In another translation, it says, on whom his favor rests. How many of you know that you and I don't deserve this peace? But simply because of what Jesus Christ did for us, God is pleased with us and God has given us favor. The favor of God is resting upon you and me. That's why we have this peace with God, peace with men, and peace in ourselves. When you talk about peace, it means shalom. It means irin. It means nothing missing, nothing broken. It's, it's the ultimate blessing that you can actually have. The peace of God. He is the Prince of Peace. A heart that desires the glory of God will know actually the peace of God. If you ultimately desire to glorify God, you will always find the peace of God. It's interesting that another title of our Lord Jesus is He's the Prince of Peace. And He gives us peace no matter what. Remember earlier I said that part of the job description of an emperor is to provide peace over the kingdom. He thinks that by ruling over an empire, he brings peace over the kingdom. This is what a first century pagan writer was writing about for that. While the emperor may give peace from war, he is unable to give peace from grief. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns. And how many of you know only Jesus can actually give us the ultimate peace in our hearts? Amen. He is the Prince of Peace. Whatever it is that we are going through right now, I believe that He wants to step in and say to the storms of our life, Peace, be still. Luke 19, 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Of course, you're familiar with Jesus on the boat. There was a storm. And I don't know your situation right now. Maybe you're in that boat and you're praying for the storm to disappear. You're praying for the boat to go around the storm. But you know, many times, Jesus allows us to go through the storm. But don't worry about the storm as long as Jesus is in the boat. And Jesus will hold you in the midst of the storm. He will speak to your situation, peace, be still. Whether it's sickness, whether it's personal or maybe a loved one, maybe it's marriage, maybe it's financial, Maybe it's even loss of a loved one or grief. It's definitely something that we did not expect. Many times, storms just come without even any warning. How many of you wish that storms should warm us sometimes? But many times, they come in uninvited. They come in and they interrupt our lives. But one thing remains. Jesus is there in our boat. And He sits there. And He's stable there. And he is relaxed. He is not panicking. He is just speaking to the storms. Peace. Be still. Let's just trust in the Lord. In the midst of the fiercest storms, Jesus is in your boat bringing you peace. Amen. Allow me to just close 
When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. These shepherds were the lowliest of occupations, but yet they were the first ones to be the evangelist and talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And they went with haste. Everybody say with haste. There was a sense of urgency. Have you ever had that feeling of going to the presence of God and say, I can't wait to be in the presence of God. They wanted to worship God. They wanted to see this king. They wanted to be in front of this baby born whose name is Jesus and who was promised. And they went in haste. Never waited anymore. You know, I don't know what they did with the sheep. Maybe they left them behind. I don't know. If they, all the more, they just went and found the mother and the father and the child. And when they saw it, they made known a saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, verse 19, treasured all these things and pondering them in their heart. Mary somehow has just deposited this. The angel appeared to her in chapter 1. She knew for a fact that this baby that she was carrying for nine months was from the Holy Spirit. But after meeting all these shepherds, strangers, and saying that an angel appeared to us, telling us that the one that you have is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How many of you know as a mom or as a parent, you will just treasure all these things in your heart? She's probably putting that in her data bank until the time that you know, Jesus grew up in the temple until he went to the cross and died for man's sin. But yet, she said, let it be done to me as a servant of God. What's interesting that the last verse is about praising. When the angel appeared to the shepherds, they were filled with fear. When they had encountered the Lord Jesus, they were filled with faith. And their response is not to get away from God, but the response is there to glorify and to praise God because of what they have heard and what they have seen. I believe that as we encounter the Lord in 2019 and beyond, this year, you can't help but just praise and glorify the Lord. You may be in a situation that is stormy. You may be in a situation of obscurity. You may be in a situation of you're not sure what's going to happen. Just submit your life to the sovereignty of God. Remember that God is a humble king. You can always come to him. He will not drive us away. He said, come to me, those of you who are heavily laden. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. Let's just bow our heads right now. Maybe some of us are going through such storms in your heart. Maybe some are going through struggles of temptations and you need to submit to your, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you are not sure about the future. You're in a crossroad. Just submit to the sovereign will and plan of God for your life. Maybe some of you are going through a lot of turmoils in your life, relationship, physical, emotional maybe. Maybe this Christmas or maybe this year, you don't really consider this year as one of your best years. Maybe it's one of your worst years. But nonetheless, Jesus is here and He is the Prince of Peace. Or maybe some of us are going through this best year ever. 
But let me remind you, just like the Lord Jesus Christ humbled Himself, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He humbled Himself, made Himself a servant, and He served. I believe whatever we are in life right now, the Holy Spirit wants to minister to us. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to worship you, opportunity to give you praise, opportunity to honor you. Father, I thank you that even as your word says that because Jesus humbled himself, he was given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as your people, God, we will declare that Jesus Christ is the Lord of our lives. Thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for being humble and coming to rescue us. Thank you for having compassion to us as your people. Thank you for reconciling us back to you and providing the peace that we don't deserve. That the peace that, transpa- uh, that uh, surpasses our understanding may guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God, I thank you for the victory that we have. For some of us that needs encouragement, give us encouragement, Holy Spirit. I pray that you are the lifter of our head, God. Lift up whatever burdens that we have in our hearts. It may be loneliness, it may be grief right now, it may be oppression, it may be depression, it may be lostness. But I thank you, Holy Spirit, you are the one that we need. And I thank you, Lord God, as we leave this place, may you help us to respond just like the shepherds that we will respond in praise and we will respond to glorify God and we will respond in speaking about you they did not stop in telling about the goodness of the Lord in their lives make us a people like that God glorifying you, honoring you evangelizing about you sharing to others the goodness of God in our lives and I thank you Lord God indeed our lives, our families will be blessed because we submit our lives into your sovereign grace, God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord turn his face towards you and grant you peace. May the love of our Heavenly Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us always. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody say, Amen.